Do you deal with all temptations to sin in the same way? Or do some temptations require different tactics to conquer? On the first Sunday of Lent, the homily my family heard at Mass was about how to handle temptation. And our priest, a member of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri, said that for most temptations, you meet the temptation head on. And that facing that temptation repeatedly and repeatedly overcoming that temptation, repeatedly making the correct choice, would eventually make it easier and easier to say no. However, Father said, there are two exceptions to that rule, to that method, and those two exceptions are the temptations to lust and to anger. Father went on to say that when it comes to temptations to lust and to anger, the best way to handle it is to distract oneself from it rather than meeting it head on. And that got me thinking about that excuse that women make, that they can't help being angry with their husbands. And I think up until this point, I've only gone so far as to say that, yes, you can. Um, I realized, however, that I've also failed to make this distinction that Father makes in his homily about not meeting that anger head on. Because when you meet the temptation to be angry with your husband head on with no other plan than to just buckle down and try to shut up about it and pretend to not be angry, you will almost inevitably fail. Why? For this simple reason. When I say that you can help your anger, I am not saying that women never have valid reasons to be angry with their husbands. My husband contends with multiple addictions and he will be the first to tell you that I had every reason to be angry when he was drinking daily. And praise God, he's been dry now for almost three years. When I say that you can help your anger, when I say that you can choose to be angry or not, I'm not saying that you don't have valid reasons to be angry. Neither am I saying that choosing to not be angry somehow makes the reason for your anger disappear. But what I have learned in walking with my husband on this path of bearing the cross of addiction, which is a lifelong cross, what I have learned is that oftentimes what it comes down to is a choice between being right and being holy. And funnily enough, it is also a choice between misery and happiness. Only holiness can make us truly happy. When women choose being right over being holy, that's when you see great misery in marriage. Because when being right and being holy align with each other, then yes, being right also makes one happy. But when being right and being holy are at odds with each other, you see great misery. When a woman cannot let go of the fact that she may very well be right to be angry. But the universal call to holiness 
is a call to go above and beyond. And Christ's call to forgiveness demands that sometimes we forego being right about something in order to seek something higher, in order to seek holiness. Even in situations of domestic abuse, where the church allows for the physical separation of spouses in order to keep spouses safe, even then, the victim is called by Christ to forgive the abuser. Forgiveness is mandatory. It is mandated by our faith. Reconciliation is sometimes not possible, as in a situation of domestic abuse. But Christ commands us to forgive regardless of the circumstances. Moreover, I'm going to amend a previous statement. It's not about foregoing being right. It's about choosing to be right about something else which supersedes it. You might be right. You might have a perfectly legitimate reason to be angry, but it is also right to forgive. And the fact that forgiveness is the correct course of action, regardless of the circumstances, outweighs the right to be angry concerning an offense. Christ demonstrates this in his passion when he had every right to be angry that he was being put to death for no fault of his own. The ultimate injustice right? That he was humiliated in every respect. Isaiah 53 verses 2 to 3 describes Christ in this way, quote, he had no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. End quote. Christ forgiving the men who put him to death was not an admission of guilt on his part. And his choice to not act against these men out of truly righteous anger did not make light of their sin. And that's what we need to understand, that when we choose forgiveness over even what is truly righteous anger against any offense by our husbands or anyone else, we are imitating Christ. Moreover, Christ loved those men who put him to death. And that's very important for us to remember also. Christ did not forgive them and then remain aloof from them. He forgave them and made his love and his grace available to them in and through that forgiveness. And so how much more is it, how much more important is it to understand that in situations where there is no physical danger to spouses, reconciliation is ideal for the simple reason that the call to forgiveness is not a call to be unhappy in your marriage, quite the opposite. To be happy in your marriage, in a marriage which does not merit physical separation for safety of spouses, you have to reconcile as well as forgive. And unfortunately, this is the hang-up. Many women refuse to forgive simply because they want to avoid reconciliation. And they avoid reconciliation because they don't believe that their husband deserves to be happy. It is more important to them to be right, and it is more important to them that their husband be punished in some manner for whatever action it is that they find offensive than it is that their marriage be a happy and healthy one. What they think 
is justice to their husband is ultimately more important to them than holiness. They want to make sure that their husband isn't let off the hook. So they take it upon themselves to deny happiness to their husband while at the same time denying happiness to themselves. If that sounds extreme, something as simple as kissing your husband goodbye and wishing him a great day at work as he leaves in the morning and also greeting him warmly when he gets home in the evening, these are little things that mean a lot. But while we call them little things, the fact that we use these little things against our husband shows that we know the real value of these little things and how much they can hurt when we omit them. The worst part about this is that precisely because God has not appointed the wife to act on his behalf as judge, jury, and executioner, on top of the sin of unforgiveness, the wife who goes out of her way to punish her husband by her denial of forgiveness and reconciliation commits yet a further sin against her marriage. Punishing your spouse is a serious betrayal of your vows. But again, choosing to not be angry doesn't always mean that your reason for being angry is invalid or silly or trivial or small. That is not the point here. The point is that Christ didn't tell us to forgive only those things which were silly or trivial or small. He told us to forgive unconditionally and went so far as to command us to forgive our enemies. Now, I hope that you don't see your husband as your enemy. But if you're supposed to forgive your enemies, then do you really think that Christ isn't asking you to forgive your husband on whose team you're supposed to be at all times? A side note here, sometimes we don't think of our reaction as anger. That's not what we would name it. But another word for it might be discontent. Discontent in marriage is a form of anger. It's an angry belief that you deserve something other than what is. And there are other words, frustration, annoyance, dissatisfaction, displeasure, irritation. All of these are some iteration of anger. And when tempted to any of them, they should be dealt with in the same way. If you do have a valid reason to be angry, like say, a husband who abuses alcohol, for example. What Father said in his homily still applies that the best way to handle a temptation to anger is to distract oneself from it. And the discipline of joy accomplishes this. So let's talk through that. As we covered in episodes five and six, we need grace to conquer our temptations. And the discipline of joy is the discipline of reaching for God's grace. With planned rest, which we covered in episode 7, we actively plan to tap into God's store of grace, which he offers freely at all times, but which requires our response in order to receive and therefore be able to utilize. So, the application here is there are some things that our husband does that we know gets on our nerves, regardless of whether or not we have the right to be upset about it. If we are able to anticipate that behavior in our husband, then we can make a point of tapping into God's store of grace when we know that that behavior is likely to occur.
If we're filled up on grace, we're more likely to respond well versus giving into a temptation to be angry. Again, not making the reason for our anger go away, but distracting us from it. When we're filled up on grace, we want to stay that way. We're much more magnanimous. We have much more self-control. We're more accountable to ourselves for our choices. And again, it might not be, you might not call it anger per se. It might be annoyance. It might be frustration. If you are frustrated that your husband never puts his dirty clothes in the clothes hamper, (laughs) okay? That's an iteration of anger. And that may seem like a very small thing, but when you allow it to build up, when you allow it to avalanche, um, then it can cause some real problems. In episode eight, we talked about about spontaneous rest, recognizing when our store of grace has been very suddenly depleted by an unforeseen battle, a spiritual ambush, which caught us at a low point where we had not built up our store of grace enough with our planned rest. And so we have to have a backup plan to tap back into that store of God's grace quickly, immediately, when we recognize that we are suddenly and unexpectedly depleted. And we talked at length about how this demands a great deal of self-awareness and self-knowledge. So, application, our husband does something which annoys us, which takes us by surprise. It's not something that he normally does. It's just, you know, it was something out of the blue. But rather than sitting with that annoyance, rather than wallowing in it and seething and allowing it to swell into anger, which is then sinful precisely because we have entertained it and made no effort to stem its swelling, rather than sitting with that frustration and falling into sin, we immediately recognize what we're dealing with. Again, self-awareness, self-knowledge. And we go do something to tap into God's store of grace. The thing that happened that annoyed us doesn't magically disappear. But we choose to redirect. We choose to turn our focus from that action, which we find offensive, and we choose to refocus on God. In episode 9, we talked about intentionally rejoicing in God's blessings on a daily basis. When we do this, when we discipline ourselves to do this, what we realize is that yes, we have trials and some of them are mountains. Not all of them are us just making mountains out of molehills, although we ought to be guarded against that tendency also. But even the real mountains are nothing in comparison to the vastness of the ocean of God's blessings. And when we're aware of that vastness of the ocean of his blessings, when we keep the mountains and the molehills in perspective, it's much easier to make light of the hardships. And I'm speaking from the perspective of a wife whose husband is a recovering addict on multiple fronts and is on what we assume is lifetime medication for mental health. Mental health and addiction in a marriage can definitely feel like climbing mountains. Um, just, just about a year before I met my husband, I spent a few days in the badlands of South Dakota with a number of other young adults under the care of the brothers and sisters 
of St. John. And I can actually tell you from experience that climbing a mountain is hard. <laughs> but I will never forget what I was told I had to do to accomplish it. The brothers leading the climb told me I had to keep putting one foot in front of the other, that success depended upon momentum, and that if I were to stop once I lost that momentum, it would be that much harder to reach the top. We had had a day-long hike. We started by zigzagging down a cliff face using a very narrow, very steep path and I learned that you have to put your feet sideways to grip better and to keep from sliding. If you put your feet forward as you normally would when walking, you're more likely to start slipping forward because the path was that steep. Once we got down the cliff face, the hike itself was pretty straightforward. There were some areas of tall grass higher than our heads, but for the most part, it was flat and fairly empty, lots of prairie dogs peeking at us, maybe even some ferrets. No rattlesnakes, thank God. Uh, but we did have to skirt around the base of a hill at the top of which was a terrifyingly large bison staring us down the entire time. Then again, now that I say that, all bison are terrifyingly large from the moment of their birth. Um, but then we got to this mountain and we were exhausted. But the only way home was up. And there were tears. <laughs> but I have to tell you, marriage can be like that. Uh, newlywed life is a learning curve, much like zigzagging down a barely existent path down a cliff face. And then you go along and it's pretty flat. It's one day after another with not much changing, or at least changing too slowly for you to really notice. And then all of a sudden you can find yourself at the base of a mountain. <laughs> And the only way home, the only way to heaven, is up. But the split second that you pause work on your marriage, the split second that you entertain uncertainty, it is that much harder to get up and keep going. I think the most amazing thing about getting to the top is that when I got there, I didn't feel big. I didn't feel tall. I didn't feel huge. When I got to the top of that mountain, I felt so much smaller than I did when I was at the base. But the view was worth it. Addiction and mental health are lifelong crosses, but, but learning the skills to be able to walk with my husband and not be bogged down by negativity feels like conquering a mountain. And what I found is that conquering a mountain in marriage, far from making one feel big, it makes one realize how small one is and how small the mountain was compared to the vastness of the landscape, the vastness of the joy-filled life that God means for me to have. Getting to the top of a mountain and seeing that I have my whole life in front of me to live in the joy and the presence of God was worth every gut-wrenching step. Now, the final part of the discipline of joy, which we covered in four episodes, we described as living the serenity prayer. And this part does two things. It prevents us from making mountains out of molehills. And when climbing a mountain, it ensures that we keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, the other three parts of the discipline of joy are relatively easy to get back into if you've slacked off for whatever re reason. 
But the discipline of living the serenity prayer, which is essentially the discipline of respect, is increasingly difficult to recommit to once you've fallen off of the bandwagon. And this should not come as a surprise to us, given that our husbands need respect like they need oxygen. If you need a refresher on that concept, head on back to episode 16. And so naturally, the devil attacks hardest in this area because he wants to cut off our husband's oxygen through us. And yet there is also a pedagogy to what we do here, and we introduce the other three parts of the discipline of joy first, because some relative consistency in practicing the other three parts of the discipline of joy makes tackling this fourth part easier. Anything that we can do to make this fourth part of the discipline of joy easier to tackle goes a long way because backsliding on this particular part can be especially devastating to a marriage, especially if there has been a history of disrespect. Unsurprisingly, if there has been a history of disrespect, which usually includes attempts at control and manipulation, when a wife attempts to reestablish respect, there is likely to be a lot of suspicion and pushback on her husband's part. And if there is then significant backsliding, this can seem to him to be proof that these new behaviors are yet another form of manipulation and control. So even though the fourth and final part of the discipline of joy is the most crucial to repairing a struggling marriage or maintaining a marriage which is still doing pretty well, again, we introduce the other three parts of the discipline of joy because they help us tackle this fourth part by filling us up with the grace that we need to practice this fourth part with sincerity and the consistency needed to really change the culture in our marriage. A further note about repairing a marriage where there has been a long history of consistent disrespect. How do you know when you've successfully made a lasting change? How do you know when you've successfully changed the culture? Um, And the answer is, uh, you'll know when you get there, (laughs) which no one likes to hear. Uh, You tell it to your kids when you're in the car and they're asking, are we there yet? Right? Going back to climbing an actual mountain. When you're climbing a mountain, again, you've got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You must not break stride or you will immediately become discouraged. But another thing that can be unhelpful is actually looking up and trying to see how much further you have to go. It's actually better in general to focus on your feet and make sure that you're stepping carefully and safely and that you're not about to twist your ankle. But also, if you keep looking up, you can discourage yourself to the point where you convince yourself that you're not getting anywhere. And that's not true. Every step forward is a step forward. But when you've got a mountain to climb, it's really easy to talk yourself out of continuing. But the thing is, if you let yourself get stuck, you're well and truly stuck. (laughs) When you have a mountain in your marriage, like a history of disrespect, which you're trying to conquer, there is no going 
back. The only way you can undo the damage that a history of disrespect has wrought on your marriage is by moving forward and doing objectively better. There is no retracing your steps and starting back from your wedding day. What's done is done. And skirting the issue, going sideways metaphorically, just to fool yourself that you're still moving, makes your overall journey longer and doesn't bring you any closer to the top. It's like St. Augustine praying, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. At some point, you have to drop the not yet part, or not yet becomes never. The only way forward is up, or the only way up is forward, however you prefer to look at it. But it is not helpful to be like the kid in the car asking, are we there yet? You've got to keep chugging along. One step at a time is the equivalent of one day at a time. You focus on your feet to make sure you're taking the next best step. You focus on one day at a time and on having the best day that you could possibly have. And that's the purpose of the examine, which we introduced in episode 14 and which we explained is for daily use. And it's actually quite beautiful to when climbing a mountain that in this way, when you get to the top, it sort of takes you by surprise. You know that you're headed towards it, but because your focus is on your feet, when you hit the top, it truly takes your breath away. If you commit to a daily examination of your actions and you commit to taking it one day at a time and making each day the best day that it can possibly be, you can be assured that you are traveling in the right direction and that you will get to the top and ultimately the results will take your breath away. So, to sum up the first part of this episode, piggybacking off of the homily one of our parish priests gave on the first Sunday of Lent, where he stated that the way to handle temptations to lust and anger is not to meet the temptation head-on, but rather to distract ourselves from it. We have spent the bulk of this episode talking about how the discipline of joy accomplishes that distraction, that redirection, that refocusing on God when we're tempted to be angry or frustrated or discontent or displeased or dissatisfied or irritated with our husband. In the second part of today's episode, um, which is going to be very brief, you've probably heard some version of the following challenge. If someone walked into your home for the first time, or if someone spent a day with you, would there be enough evidence before them to convict you of being a Christian? In the second part of today's episode, I am going to suggest a method for putting life into perspective, and that is to extend that challenge into married life in the following manner. If someone spent the day with your husband, would they find enough evidence to convict you of being an excellent Catholic wife? Now, immediately, the knee-jerk reaction of many of you is, now hang on, that's not fair. <laughs> Why are they spending the day with him? Why not me? Well, for the simple reason that being a wife has everything to do with belonging to your husband. The fact that you have a husband is what makes you a wife. You don't have a husband, you're not a wife. <laughs> Furthermore, in our very first episode, right off the bat, 
We shared this paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church following 1533, which establishes baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist as the sacraments of Christian initiation. 1534 reads, quote, Two other sacraments, holy orders and matrimony, are directed towards the salvation of others. If they contribute as well to personal salvation, it is through service to others that they do so. They confer a particular mission in the church and serve to build up the people of God. End quote. Your entire existence as a married woman is ordered to God through service to your husband and children, a service rendered unto them that ought to bring them closer to heaven as well as ourselves. Also in our first episode, we talked about marriage being a dance, how neither party is neutral. Every action of ours counts for something. Every action, every single action, no matter how small, counts for something. This is the lesson given by St. Therese of Lisieux, that every tiny action is worth something in the economy of salvation. If you're not familiar with the term economy of salvation, check it out in the glossary of the catechism. So yeah, if someone were to spend a day with your husband, would your husband present enough evidence to convict you of being an excellent and holy wife. Spouses who are happy in their marriage are constantly presenting each other with evidence of the other person's competence as their spouse. A happy husband is one whose wife is constantly presenting him with evidence that he is a good husband to her. A happy wife is one whose husband is constantly presenting her with evidence that she is a good wife to him. Think of how you feel when your husband thanks you for the wonderful meal that you cooked. Or when he thanks you for taking such good care of the kids. Or when he thanks you because some part of the house is clean and that alleviates his stress. When he thanks you um, for letting him talk to you about something that's been on his mind. What that does is it, it puts evidence in front of you that you're doing well, that you're doing well by him. Well, the same thing can work for your husband. When you present him with evidence that he's doing well by you, it does so much for your marriage. We're going to talk more about this in weeks to come. I hope you're all having a very blessed and holy Lent. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.